This is an ABC podcast. Hello, hi, it's me, Pip. I am solo again because Dee's got COVID. Oh, God, I feel so bad for her, the poor thing. She is not well. So sending her all the love and healing. She should be back very, very soon. But right now, I'm excited to share with you this episode of The Hookup Podcast. A few weeks back, Dee and I sat down with Hannah McElhinney. Now, you might have seen her content online as she's a queer correspondent for ABC Queer on Insta. But you also might have come across her TikTok at Rainbow History Class, where Hannah and her mate Rudy talk about queer and trans history all the way back from ancient Rome to ancient China to right now in 2023. And that's why we got her in studio, because Hannah just wrote a beautiful book called Rainbow History Class, taking all her knowledge of queer history and putting it in print. It's such an incredible read. It's funny, it's entertaining, and it's so educational about where we've come from and where we're going. And honestly, Dee and I spent at least an hour in studio chatting to Hannah about it because we were learning so much and it's all so fascinating. And Quite frankly, so much of the stuff we didn't know because it's full of stories that you wouldn't hear about in school or really most history books because there's just been so much queer erasure throughout time in history. Like, I bet you didn't know how lesbians of San Diego saved countless gay men during the HIV-AIDS crisis. Or that you've never heard of Elagabalus, the controversial ancient Roman trans icon who set tigers on her dinner party guests. Or maybe you didn't know that Muslim poet Rumi might have been queer. So if you liked our chat with Esme Louise about kink and queer history, you're going to absolutely love this. And if you haven't heard that, go back in the feed and check it out a little bit later. But right now, stay here and strap in because Rainbow History Class is in session. And we started our chat with Hannah by asking her why it was so important to write this book. Well, this book is designed to be kind of a crash course or a catch-up to people that might be new to the community. Maybe they've just come out or maybe this is the first time that they've become interested in their culture and community of, of people like them. So it's designed to be kind of like a welcome gift to the community and at the same time a bit of a thank you to people who have fought, I guess, for the relative freedoms that we do have today. What I loved is that you did mention, which I think about quite a bit, actually. I don't know why I think about this a lot. I think it was after I watched Hamilton, which sounds so stupid. But who writes history has always been decided for us. So it's like how factual is actually history if it's been written specifically by a type of person throughout history, which is, you know, white men, old white men, Mm. uh, not women and not people of colour. So how important was it for you to acknowledge this but also include queer history that's from people of colour as well. And, yeah, was that hard to find? Yeah, definitely. So the first thing that was kind of – well, that's mind-bending and I'm just – it's blatantly obvious fact, but, like, when you talk about things like ancient Greece, it's so long ago that there are ancient Greek historians that lived in ancient Greece. So, right, right. So often so much of the, like, history that you will read that, you know, is never really, like, questioned, it might come from, I don't know, one of those ancient Greek or ancient Roman kind of philosophers, Seneca or something like that. Um, You know, they're actually about no closer to sort of sitting down and having a chat with one of the figures that, you know, I talk about in this book than we are to getting to know Einstein. 
it's kind of but we just think oh ancient Greek yeah that they must know because they knew them that's just they that's were pals just, they had they sat out the back and <laughs> absolutely and and people back then had like really off um, ethics too and also I think we think that people in the olden times the ancient times didn't have any sense of humor um, and that's not the case as well like so there were trolls back then so often you'll sort of see historic historical documents and things where there are clearly kind of trolling or or jokes and why wouldn't there be um, but it's just that for hundreds and hundreds of years we've taken them verbatim. You've spoken a bit there about ancient Greece uh, which we know has a lot of queer history despite maybe not like publicly knowing about. Um, you've written about it quite a bit in the book. Going back to how they understood love between people, we're often using the terms my other half, right? So where does that originally come from? Well, there was this kind of creation story, uh, which I guess kind of mirrors Adam and Eve. So if it was like ancient Greece's version of Adam and Eve, and it was put out by this philosopher and writer called Aristophanes. And he posited this um, in this book called The Symposium, which is by Plato. And he has this kind of idea for a creation tale that all humans were once completely spherical beings with four arms and four legs and two heads. And because one day, and this is where it really mirrors, you know, Adam and Eve, they angered Zeus. Um, and as a result, um, they were all kind of severed in half and they were all kind of forced to go through life seeking out their other half to be reunited again. Now, what happened is some people, um, or some halves, <laughs> some ha- half orbs, half spheres, some half spheres would be going through um, life, and they kind of both were from a male origin mm. okay and so they were destined to go and find their male other half male and male and they were that was considered good and right because you know one male's great two males well, oh wow party that's, like, that's double power <laughs> yeah. um and so you know that was considered great then there was kind of uh two feminine halves that would be forced to go and find each other and you know that was a union that was like soft and beautiful and feminine and nurturing and then there was those that are destined to be kind of one man and one woman and again that was important for procreation but why it's really interesting is it's sort of these aren't kind of there's not a main heterosexual orb being yeah but it is kind of you know one of three equally valid parents yeah Yeah. pairings and each was kind of important so yeah it's kind of uh, an interesting answer to to Adam and Eve and it's weird how um, it just kind of echoes what would happen because this happened you know well before the Bible was written. Mm. 100%. I know what origin story I would rather hear. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Give me that girl love every time. (laughs) I just like, yeah, it just reading that in your book, I, my mind generally was blown. I was like, why have we been told such a different story? That's the thing. It's like, yeah, just learning so much about these alternative, um, like, understandings and philosopher ideas that we just, like, do not read about. So it was really refreshing to read it in your book. Now, there was this um, story that we read called The Cut Sleeve from Ancient China. Can you tell us about what exactly happened there? Yeah, so in... um in China, there's now it's sort of as a euphemism, um, but the passion of the cut sleeve is, you know, a one way to refer to queerness or homosexuality. And it comes back to this story 
there was this emperor um, called Emperor Ai um, of Han Dynasty China, and he had this lover called Dongxian. And one day he was sleeping on the bed with his lover, and it was the middle of the day, and Dongxian was looking so peaceful, you know, peacefully asleep, and it really moved the emperor. And so rather than wake his sleeping lover, he just cut off his sleeve um, so that his lover could continue uh, sleeping peacefully. And that's the kind of thing I would do for my dog. (laughs) My girlfriend as well, maybe. (laughs) Definitely definitely the dog. And then what happened afterwards is that the whole kind of palace was really moved by um, this kind of act of kindness and generosity. So then everyone started just cutting off their sleeve as a kind of tribute to this beautiful act. And yeah, that's where, you know, you will get the phrase passion of the cut sleeve from. It's so cool. And I 100% agree. Now, before reading your book, Hannah, um, we had never heard of this next historical figure called Ella Gabalus, who quite frankly, is a baddie, an icon. She was truly the moment. I want you to explain who this person was and why did they become the transgender icon of ancient Rome? So Ella Gabalus was born male, um, but, yeah, went through life um, demanding to be called a lady, not a lord, and going by um, feminine pronouns. You know, if we were applying modern terminology to ancient people, we could say that she is the she is somebody who we could reasonably say might have identified as a trans woman if she was alive today. Now she was um, an emperor, and she was a pagan, and she, as a result, elagabal comes from the um, word like word for sun and sun worship. So that's kind of her um, her pagan background, and she was really rude she i can't she was fierce i didn't know what you were gonna say then i'm like, like she rude. was a bitch i can't say c- on on yeah, absolutely oh well, well, well i didn't want to say but i was like she served c- yeah, yeah 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 100 um she was kind of like known for throwing these elaborate um dinner parties at one of them um she allegedly rained flowers down on all her guests crushing them to death so i don't really know about the the fact of that <laughs> story but that's a story often attributed to her other times um she'd sort of um send tigers or lions um into her guests dinner party afterwards just like for a little light entertainment light entertainment she was but having said that again how we talk about this she was hated and so again often (laughs) this this information might have come from you know another one of those historians who didn't like her but she was, you know, known for kind of having a very feminine expression, um, wanting to be called a lady. Not a lord, right? Yeah, yeah. and she was she was said to have offered, like, large sums of money to anyone that could provide her with a vagina. So, oh, wow. you know, there there's all these markers that suggested she really did want to physically transition to affirm her gender as as a lady okay everyone else hated her but i stand as soon as i read like she was bringing out the tigers and just being a bitch i was like like, she sounds like me she sounds fun i got lost at the like the flowers killing people (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> like imagining these roses being like. I know what a what a way to go. There's actually like an artwork of it called like the Roses of Heliogabalus, which is another name that she went by. Um, and you can kind of yeah see this scene where all of her flowers were <laughs> were allegedly crushing her dinner guests to death. And you know what? If you like had real terrible dinner guests you know i can't blame her was she wrong yeah (laughs) okay so another figure that i personally didn't really know about in queer history was muslim poet rumi so i guess my association with them has always just been on like instagram when they're sharing those when people are sharing those like quotes from them and it's like rumi um uh, uh but they actually had a mentor turned lover right so Rumi is yeah like you said you know a lot of a lot of celebs big fan of Rumi's work Chris Martin Gwyneth Paltrow etc they love so (laughs) Rumi was a poet but also a Sufi mystic so he was kind of first and foremost a Muslim and what he did as part of his Sufism was he would kind of recite his poetry in a kind of state of like ecstatic transcendence, I guess you could say, by by like whirling around very quickly in a circle. And so that started off um, kind of a group of people that worshipped him or followed in his footsteps called the Whirling Dervishes. And so what he did was most of his poetry was entirely spoken until other people started writing it down. So that's that's quite common for the time. Mm. And he, he met his teacher who really kind of apparently took his spirituality to the next level and they would kind of spend time locked away together in a state of spiritual bliss that in the way it was written about was very kind of sexual in a sense. Now it is kind of one of those gray areas because just because somebody is kind of writing about love in some way doesn't mean that it corresponds to like specific acts that we would now think of. So of course we don't know but it was very much like they they were sort of having these kind of orgasmic discussions. <laughs> well, we're going to go into like sort of a semi-dark place, I guess, now because moving up in the timeline of queer history, we have to talk about like the AIDS crisis really. Probably one of the most like prominent moments, I guess, in queer history as well, like for modern people. Um, it was such a dark time. There was so much fear. There was so much discrimination. But there was this story that you wrote about, um, about these queer women coming together to help the gay men um, in San Diego. What exactly happened there? Oh, so this is the Blood Sisters of the HIV AIDS crisis. It's one of my favourite stories um, just because so little is known about, you know, the lesbian experience of the HIV AIDS crisis. In fact, afterwards, you know, the, the acronym that we say and always get muddled up with, but it actually used to be GLBT. Um, but oh. post the AIDS crisis, it's now LGBT. Um, and that is part of that is about recognizing the contribution of lesbians to the community. Wow. Um, yeah, as after the AIDS wow. crisis. Mm. So they swapped. They swapped the G and the L. Um, yeah, so because... It, that's huge. If yeah. you, you know, the AIDS crisis, gay men were either sick or caring for the sick. And so they weren't able to kind of continue the the activist work. So lesbians um, sort of stepped up and did a lot of the advocacy. Also the gay men, they were had to be really focused on AIDS advocacy as well. Mm. Um, so lesbians helped there. And then also lesbians became primary carers. So many of them worked as nurses. Um, and so they were real caregivers for the community at this time. And this particular group of 
um, lesbians, they organised a lesbian blood drive. Um, and this was because um, at the time, if you had HIV and you were on medication um, that they had at the time, this drug um, called AZT, you needed a whole lot of blood transfusions very, very regularly. Now, gay men were not allowed to donate blood because of HIV, so there was this massive blood shortage. Mm. So lesbians kind of got together, they put up flyers, um, they rolled up their sleeves. Um, you know, the flyers said things like, Let, let's help our boys, and they kind of got them all together and just donated blood and then they sort of propped up everywhere um, this kind of lesbian blood drive. And so when people talk about found family is kind of something Mm -hmm. um, that I hear a lot of people talk about. This is what I always think about because you think of found family as not um, blood related. But in this case, I think it kind of was. They they shared blood Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is really fucking cool. It's so beautiful and it's obviously so symbolic as well. I have like a personal thing in my life like – um, my grandma actually back in the day when the HIV uh, AIDS crisis was going on in Australia, um, she had a lot of gay male friends and she would go to Hyde Park, make them sandwiches and like take care of them. My grandma, shout out Patricia, Patricia, Patricia. Taylor. Oh my, gosh, my grandma was called Patricia as well. Oh my God, no way. It's a great grandma name. Well, yeah, Pat or Trish, however you go by. Um, she wasn't lesbian, but you know, it like this story like really hit me because I was just like, I don't know. I just like, I love that story about my grandma. I love that she did Mm. that. And there were just not that many people there for them. And so it was awesome to see like this female side of people coming together and and helping them. So yeah, it really was emotional for me. (laughs) Totally. I mean, your grandma like saved prolonged lives, Mm. made lives better, more Mm. bearable. That's the thing. I think so many women throughout that time did things that, you know, we don't even think about, you know, there was obviously the activism, but just things like the shopping, the Mm. cleaning, the kind of, you know, even in Australia where we were in a better situation in terms of having a government that back then was more responsive. Um, So things were kind of a little easier and we had kind of better access to care in America. Like there was, if you had AIDS, like, and you didn't have a job that gave you good insurance, most insurance didn't cover cover AIDS-related complications. Yeah, you had no choice but Mm. to, yeah, I guess, rely on the care of people like your grandma. Yeah. It's so scary that yeah. that was just still such a close proximity to where we are at now in oh, history. Totally. Obviously, back in ancient times, even before the internet began, there were very different ways that queer people were fighting for their rights. What are the ways that you think we're doing that now and how yeah, how are they different? Well, I think the biggest shift from the internet is first and foremost for trans people because what the internet allows is a kind of digital avatar. So you can kind of transition online, try out different gender identities um, in a great seamless way on the internet, you know, and that's how when the internet was introduced, it was really trans women that really used it um, because they were kind of sharing information about their transitions and where access was, as well as kind of using names and, you know, experimenting with, I guess, the the gender that they would like to eventually, you know, take on publicly. And so that was really important, perhaps less of an activism thing, but still kind of building blocks to having visible transgender representation. And then 
of course, then dating, dating apps and things like that have really kind of allowed our community to be a bit more visible and have different kind of access, uh, sort of stopped the beats or like Mm. hookup spots um, in real life. And so I think those things uh, were really important in just kind of making queer life more visible. And then in terms of activism, you know, we have, it's kind of interesting because I don't know what digital activism achieves. Now I wonder it's kind of, it's, it's great for connection of movements. It's great for kind of spotlighting, in particular, marginalised voices, in particular the learning about the trans women of colour that are still being murdered, um, you know, at a disproportionate rate to the population. And so I think spotlighting is really important. Mm-hmm. When we talk about kind of activism, sometimes I I do wonder about the echo chamber effect and how social media is being used or weaponized um, because for everything that we put out there, there's kind of a swing against us from like the alt-right. <laughs> so yeah. Totally. And also just shadow banning. There's, like oh, you said, yeah. the echo chamber is like you might assume, and I think we do this a lot, of the fact that everyone kind of thinks the same way or is like has access to the same kind of voices and opinions and experiences. Yeah, 100%. Totally. You said something actually about um, connection and spotlighting, which I think is interesting because in your book you mentioned um, this code that sometimes uh, lesbians use on TikTok. Oh, yeah. Do you listen to Girl in Red? Yeah, this is brilliant. I mean, I love it because, one <laughs> – Poor girl in red didn't ask for this. She's not even a lesbian. Yeah, she I'm sure she loves she didn't it. Ask to be, she just became co-opted as this like uh, yeah secret code. But this happens a lot, right? Like it's a long lineage of these secret codes because so often we've had to use them. So you know, you go way back to the 1700s. It was um, have you heard about Marie Antoinette? So Marie oh. Antoinette was like a queer code. Um, I didn't know for that. Among sapphic women. That's so cool. Yeah, so she, because the, you know, the the people of France, the the French, if you will. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> if you will. They, the French people hated Marie Antoinette. Yeah. So they would like ridicule her by making these really obscene pornographic pamphlets of her having sex with different princesses, a princess and a duchess. They're actually quite, I want one on my wall. I <laughs> think like, they've done a great job. Um, they're stunning. But, um, yeah, because of that, she became this kind of sort of secret lesbian code because everyone was saying, oh, is she, you know, she's a lesbian. And, you know, she might have been. Um, she could have if she wanted to. So I think that's the first one. You come in later. We've got Are You a Friend of Dorothy? It was a big sort of 1950s and 60s one. Mm. We've had queer languages as well. So Polari, just dropping a word in that. And so it's natural that it, like, continues so that's why you've kind of got these codes do you listen to girl in red sweater weather for the buys oh um you know there are kind of trans um community ones as well um hayloft yeah um and then it's kind of cool because that also happens in other parts of the world so i also write about this band called mashra Layla, who are lebanese kind of indie rock band singer is openly queer and an advocate and I'm talking about this on air now because it's no longer a secret code, so I'm mm. not ruining anything. Um, but it, it was once used as a girl in red-esque type code in, in places like in North Africa, you know, across um, the Middle East that where it's obviously it's very so necessary. Yeah. So necessary. Because so, you'd just be abused. 
a hundred percent. So yeah. yeah, there's like yeah, there's so many secret codes. Now I'm thinking That's about so it. That's so cool. And I'm actually I I did know about the Dorothy one, but this is not to do with like queer history and, and stuff like that, but the code of like, you know, when you um see in the back of the girl's stall and it's like ask for Kelly at the bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now I'm like, wait, coding, secret language has been yeah, around. Huge. It's around us. That's like, so people true. are still using it. That's wow. so true. I didn't even think of that. That's a great it's, example. Yeah. All right, so my personal favourite part of this book is the Yellow Pages, which is about know your icons. Let's say if you wrote another version of this book, Volume 2, in like 20, 50 years, who do you think would be making it in your future copy? Like someone right now who you're like, they're a queer icon, I want to write about them later. It's such a good question because it's the – you always kind of think like, oh, no, um, when you're talking about really recent history because nothing – nothing or no one feels really kind of worth cementing but I think probably you would see like Gaga or Kylie I was gonna say Gaga you know like people that you know or I guess those big musical Mm. acts Harry um, Styles. I'm joking. I was, I was I'm like, joking. Get that name out of your mouth. I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'm like, I'm oh, triggering. Little, little I'm just tri- <laughs> no, little Nas. Like perhaps. Oh, that's a good. I one. think he was an icon when he first released Old Town Road. Yeah, because yeah. that really fucked people up in the US. Yeah, and he he is the perfect example of like just not giving an f yeah. about anyone's opinion. He is paving the way for so many black men. Mm. I think yeah, I feel, that feels right. Like, like Laverne Cox. Mm. Um, um, yeah. You know, I think, well, what I hope is a bit more like, you know, some of the sister girls from Australia, mm. yeah, you know, some different Indigenous voices um, who are, you know, decolonizing and really kind of bringing their kind of Indigenous queer intersecting heritage, you know, to the fore. Like, I, I hope there's a lot of that. I hope there is like just a lot more kind of radicals. The thing about the the people that are in this book is not many of them would have been probably like not that likable. Like I think it it wasn't about, you know, being palatable. A lot of these people were it might have been like narcissists or like really rude, but well, good hearted. Like Ella Gabbabus. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, Ella Gabbabus. Ella Gabbabus. Yeah, exactly. So oh. I think like sometimes it's like I'm not sure whether or not these people were loved at the time. I actually think that they were probably, you know, a thorn in the in the shoe of so many people. If I think about like Sylvia Rivera and and Marsha, like I do not think that at the time there were people saying that those women were like, yes, gay icons, yes, mm. queen, go off. Like yeah. I don't think so. I think they annoyed the living hell out of the the rights movement at the time, who probably saw them as, you know, too much or dragging their movement down or holding it back by talking all about that like prison reform and stuff. So therefore we might actually hate the person who might appear in 50 years time. Right now we might hate them and be like, no, we would never call them an icon. I think, you know, if there's someone that you sort of, that gets hated for being kind of too much or is doing something that is destructive, you know, that's probably right. Like people didn't like Oscar Wilde. People didn't, you know, like so many of these people. So it's kind of, you know, I think it should be, I don't know, like people that are doing angry things, like, I don't know, Lydia Thorpe lying down in front of the, you know, Mm. parade to 
like protest cops. I mean, like it's people that are doing that that where the reaction is is well, that's just not how things yeah. are done. They're the people that kind of seem to appear at least in this book. Definitely, definitely. Good answer. Yeah, that's. I'm like that's a new way of thinking about it. I really like that answer. So your through line for the book is an army of lovers. Um, which ties in everything together from ancient history to the history that we're living in now for queer people um, in 2023. What's your biggest takeaway for the way that queer people fight, love and exist? I think the Army of Lovers was such a, like, I don't know, beautiful idea for me because, first of all, it talks about numbers and all, you know, queer people and, you know, gender diverse people have wanted is to be able to love themselves and love other people freely. And so that's really across time, a giant army of people that have wanted that same thing and fought for it um, with kind of, you know, more hostile enemies at different points um, throughout time. So I think that's that's really something that stuck out to me. I want people to feel like they are, I don't know, standing on the shoulders of giants, that kind of that kind of idea, um, that a lot of people have been in their position and have kind of, you know, fought just by existing or by fighting um, to kind of improve things and maybe that will inspire people to continue to be part of this army of lovers. I mean, again, I history is not linear, right? It's not just like back then it was terrible and now it's incrementally better every you know decade. That's just not the case. And right now, I think with what's happening, particularly in America, and we know how much Australia loves to follow America. So I think like when we see those kinds of things, well, it's like we need, we need the army of lovers because we need to be rallying around our queer and particular, particularly our trans um you know, generals, our trans members of this army, we need to be rallying around them at the moment because um, things are getting harsher and more hostile and more oppressive for them in different places. So that's kind of the idea. I, I hope that it feels like welcoming and inclusive and like there's strength in numbers, but at the same time, you know, we're going to fight. Mm. Yeah, the fight isn't over. Like you said, we're really, really seeing that, especially like we touched on with the echo chambers that we live in. Every time you're in an echo chamber where there's people who seem really progressive and loving and caring and maybe that is that army around you, it's like there's a whole echo chamber where it's the opposite of that, unfortunately. Mm. So, yeah, a very, very important conversation, Hannah, and an important body of work. Mm. Seriously, like we learnt so much reading it. The welcome gift, as you said, to people at the very start of this chat. So, yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. This has just been awesome. This has been so fun for me too. Thank you so much for having me and talking about my favourite topic and you're the best. I actually cannot stress how much Dee and I enjoyed this chat. We were so wrapped up in everything that we were learning because like I said before, there's so much stuff that we didn't know and Hannah is just such an incredible person, such an amazing resource of knowledge and to be able to tap into that was just so fun and awesome for us. So yeah, a big thank you again to Hannah McElhinney, um, the author of Rainbow History Class. And you can also check Hannah and Rudy out on their TikTok at Rainbow History Class. And like I said before as well, if you are into queer history, go check out our um, conversation as well with Esme Louise, who is a queer and kink historian. Um, so there's more of that in the feed. So just go back 
and check it out. But yeah, I hope you really enjoyed that chat. And you can uh, always hit us up on our Instagram at Triple J The Hookup if you have any topics or guests that you really want us to get on, any questions at all, dilemmas that you're going through in terms of love, dating, sex, relationships. And you can email us anytime, thehookup at abc.net.au. I'll catch you next week. And fingers crossed, D will be here. Hoping and praying. Oh my God. Okay. Love you. Bye.